This is the day the Lord hath made. We will and be glad in it. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews in chapter 1. Hebrews in chapter 1. I would like to share with you this morning in the few minutes that we have together concerning uh, this incredible book, which I would make three statements as you're finding your passage in the book of Hebrews. I would say, first of all, number one is uh, I love this book. I love the character and the way this book is put together in, in a very sweet way. But I must confess to you that uh, I've not always been that way when, it's come, when it comes to the book of Hebrews. I can tell you that for 17 years of my early ministry, I did not preach from the book of Hebrews. I was afraid of the book. I, I felt like there was so much of the Old Testament. And in the book, I was wondering, you know, can I really mine out what the author is saying? Can I really come to grips with it? And the other reason I was a little afraid of it was because there's so much debate about the book of Hebrews. It seems like all you hear is debate about, well, you can lose your salvation or you're eternally secure. Or things like eternal sonship vis-a-vis, well, it was a earned sonship that took place at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or something along the lines of limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. So constantly, you're just hearing debate. And the sad thing is, is they're pulling out texts from Hebrews without the context of Hebrews. And so they begin to support their ideas and their thinking, their thoughts. And uh, so I, I basically just stayed away from it, brothers and sisters, for, for the longest period of time in, in my ministry here, pastoral ministry, preaching ministry. The second thing I would say to you is this. Uh, the book of Hebrews is what we would call an atypical book. It's not a normal letter. It's a, it's a, it really looks like a sermon, actually. Maybe that's what it is. Several sermons that have been put together with an introduction and a conclusion. And the sermon sort of vacillates between exposition of Old Testament scriptures and exhortation and warnings to the congregants, which is us. So that when you look at the book of Hebrews, it's, it's not like picking up the book of Galatians. It's not like picking up the book of Philippians. I mean, this is unique. There's nothing like it. One well-known commentator that most of you probably would know say, said in his commentary, he begins this way. The book of Hebrews is the most difficult book to study in all of the New Testament. Another well-known commentator made this statement about Hebrews. He said, well, Hebrews is okay if you like puzzles. So here we are with this incredible book in front of us. And as we look at it, I, I just want you to know, I love it, but I'm very aware of how people come to the book of Hebrews with prescribed ideals, with the way they want to support a certain theological uh, scheme, which maybe they've been brought up with or they are introduced to. And it's very sad that Hebrews does not have its rightful place because thirdly, let me say, Hebrews has a specific theme with two pillars. The theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Supremacy has synonyms like authority, like power, like sovereignty. It means this, that Jesus Christ is to be the high point of our lives. That's what it means when you say the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now I'm all for secret church and I'm all for all the things we are doing to try to get in depth into truth. I mean, hey, the seminary is right over here, right? 
We want to know the Greek, the Hebrew. We want to know theology and how it all fits. But that really is not our problem. Our problem today in the evangelical church is that Jesus is not supreme. Jesus does not dominate our individual lives. And since a church is made up of families and singles and people that are coming from all walks of life, if Jesus is not dominant in among the gathering of the saints, it is because he's not dominant in the homes of the saints. So I want Jesus to make his home in my heart, in your heart. So when I look at the book of Hebrews, I've got a daunting task to introduce you to the book of Hebrews for the purpose of exalting the supremacy of Christ. But I also want you to know that there are two pillars upon which this stands as you go through Hebrews. And I could take you to so many passages, but for time's sake, let's look just very briefly at those two pillars. Turn, if you will, to chapter 5 of Hebrews. And hopefully you have your Bible out. We're going to be going back and forth in the scriptures very quickly reading some passages to try to help you in your own personal understanding of this, not just the book, but what the book is trying to produce in the congregants of those who are people of Rome, especially the Jewish believers. Look in verse number 11, concerning him, 5.11, concerning him, speaking of Melchizedek in verse 10, concerning him, we have much to say, it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... In other words, you've been saved for a while, but you have need for someone to come again to teach you those elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained, has their senses exercised, so they might discern good and evil. Therefore, leave these elementary teachings about the Messiah. Let us press forward onto maturity. There is pillar number one on which the supremacy of Christ rests. This pillar is this, the book of Hebrews over and over and over is going to move you to maturity. It's going to move you to press forward, to not shrink back, if you will, but to press forward and go hard after the person of Jesus Christ. That's one pillar. There's a second pillar. Maybe the easiest way for me to explain that is to, to go to maybe chapter three. Go back to chapter three real quickly. <laughs> In verse number seven, which is really um, a reflection of Psalm in 95. Verse 7, therefore the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the day of trial in the wilderness, speaking of Israel, where your fathers tried me by testing me and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. That's where straying begins in the heart. And they did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Very important. He's speaking to us. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil and unbelieving, here's the word, heart. Remember that back in verse number 10? So that we withdraw 
from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, only, there's only two days that matter in your life today. Today and that day. These are the only two days that really matter. Right now, today, and that day that Hebrews speaks of. When we give an account before him with whom we have to do, Hebrews chapter 4. So it is important for us to think scripturally. It's important for us to think in relationships. We often think because, well, we're, we're people of Christ who are educated. And we have a lot of people running around here with an MDiv or a lot of people running around here with a, a doctor's degree or people who have been schooled in truth and are, are lay men and women in the scriptures. But let me say to you, there's a great danger. There's a great danger of this. And that's this. We lose sight of the goal of Hebrews upon the pillar of press on to maturity and upon the pillar of this. Faith is indispensable to your Christian life. Faith is indispensable to your Christian life. We talk about faith in Christ for eternal life. But Hebrews is going to talk about continuing and maintaining and persevering in that faith in Christ so that your life matters before God. It doesn't really worth, not really worth much. You know, before bank presidents and lawyers and doctors and neighbors, really, that people think well of you. But what's important is that one day we together stand before Christ and hear these words. Well done, you good and faithful what? Servant. Servant. Slave. That's all we are. But as slaves, we're sure acting pretty pompous. So when we come to the book of Hebrews, I want to challenge you, challenge my own heart with the supremacy of Christ, knowing that we need to press on to maturity. Let's not stay where we are today. And secondly, faith is indispensable to your life so that when you come to a passage like Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse number 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek, seek him. And I would say to you, that's right on the heels of Enoch. And Enoch, back in Genesis in chapter 5, it says this, he, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Think about that. We think it's something for somebody to walk with God for 50 years. Enoch walked with God for 300 years. He was 65 when he had his son. And then for 300 years, he walked with God. Verse 22, chapter 5, verse 24, and Enoch walked with God. So the, 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 the double emphasis of walking with God and then the way the author of Hebrews takes it and puts it right here in chapter 11. And before he gives that incredible statement, the indispensable, indispensability of faith in your Christian life, he says, let me tell you about Enoch. Enoch was walking with God and God just said, come on home. Just come on home. 300 consecutive years he walked with God. I've been greatly influenced by a commentary that's almost 60 years old in my study of Hebrews. And really, it was my life savior, if you will, to come to the book of Hebrews. A brilliant mind, a Greek scholar, British. 
And this is what he says about Hebrews, and I'm reading and adapting just a little bit for this congregation. The Hebrews were exposed to a subtle danger that's not experienced by those who are converted out of paganism. If a convert from paganism walks away from Christianity and returns to his pagan lifestyle, there is a clean break between the faith that he renounced and the pagan lifestyle that he resumes. But for the recipients of Hebrews, they have confessed Jesus to be their Lord and through various pressures like Jewish family and friends, a longing for the heritage, the temple, Levitical system, sacrifices. They are being encouraged to give up more and more of the distinctive features of the Christian faith. And all while they're giving them up, they are being assured that they're not really abandoning the true faith. Look at the temple. Look at the system. Look at our religion. So you're really not abandoning the faith. It's not like you're a pagan out here. And so Bruce writes this, and I want to give it to you in this way. The writer of Hebrews is stating a practical truth that has verified itself repeatedly in the experience of the evangelical church. It is a question of people who see very clearly where the truth lies. And perhaps for a period of time, they conform to that truth. But then for whatever reason, they renounce it and they walk away from it. And so this is my concern for us, for the evangelical church. This is my concern for places that I go and speak in and challenge people concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Our life is to be defined by a relationship, not a set of rules. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not even a systematic theology. It is not even knowing what others believe that do not embrace Jesus Christ. It is a life that is absolutely transformed by the work of the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of His Son, Galatians chapter 4, the Spirit of His Son, and our lives are so distinct in our world in which we live that people say, I thank God is my next door neighbor. I think God is on this floor in the office. I mean, there's something really distinctive about this person. And it's not what, how we're dressed. It's not the tag in front or behind of our name. It's not whether we're single or married. It's not even the kind of job we possess. The reality is, in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus must reign supreme if we are to have an impact in the world in which we live. We are coasting, brothers and sisters. We are not pressing. So the book of Hebrews says, press, press, press to maturity. Now, what's really amazing about that and all that's introduction and half my time is up now (laughs) what's really amazing is how he does it and the way he does it is this way he's got an introduction and he's got a conclusion and then he's got the body of his message probably sermons that have been put together in a, a very wonderful way so that audibly you can just pick up as you hear it read 
And so what I'd like to do is just look at the body real quickly, and at the end look at the body and look at the, uh, look at the introduction, look at the conclusion. So turn back to chapter 1, if you will, and I want you to see what he is going to do. He's going to take four fundamentals from Jewish theology and show how Jesus is supreme, how Jesus is sovereign, how Jesus is so glorious that when you look at these things, your eyes should just turn away from the things and look to Jesus and say, whoa, this is amazing truly amazing. And so this is what he does. And I love chapter one, even though not all of it was read in chapter one, you have in the introduction, these seven descriptions of Jesus. And then you have these seven statements of the old Testament about Jesus all within 14 verses. But it's interesting in verse number four, that these statements from the old Testament are really seven pearls of old Testament truth that are strung together so that verse number four, you see that he's better than the angels because he's inherited a more excellent name than they. And when you look at that, you have to ask yourself because, you know, we're Gentiles, we're so far removed from, from that theology. We're saying, you know, why, why begin with angels? Well, remember, angels are superior to everything on the universe because in their theology, angelic beings are of the highest order. In fact, they hold a position of quote unquote counselor to God. So the way they would interpret say Genesis 1 26, let us make man in our image. It's God speaking to his counselors, the angels, let us make man in our image. That's their theology. Jews believe that the angels were the highest created order of God who enjoyed this position as counselor to God in Jewish thought. Angels were created of a fiery substance full of blazing light. They will never die. They also believe that 200 angels control the movement of the stars. Other angels superintend the dew and the rain and the snow. Recording angels write down every word a, pe a person speaks. And all Jewish babies have their own angels. One rabbi writes, I think there's so many angels that every blade of grass has its own angel. But notice what he does with this, which is so incredible in verse number five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, you are mine. And again, I will be a father to him. He's my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, this is so important. You have a pre-existent son that is now brought with highest priority into the world. And he says, let all the angels do what? Worship him. I mean, men and women, when you begin to think through what the author is doing, he is trying to help show the significance of angels. He's not depreciating them, but he is saying that when you look at angels, that's nothing compared to the glorious Jesus. Verse number seven, and of the, he's going to be a contrast in verse seven and eight, a Monday. He's on the one hand of the angels, he says, he makes them Angels, he creates them angel winds and his ministers a flame of fire. They are created beings. However, on the other hand, to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You get, you get the comparison? Really, it's a con contrast. 
created beings and their ministers. But the Son, God, throne forever. Not depreciating the significance of angels because verse 14 of the same chapter will let us know. Angels have a, a direct ministry from God to the saints. No question about it. So he's not depreciating that. He is saying that if your eyes are turned to the highest created order, you're going to miss the greatest blessing of all. And that is this, Jesus Christ and his glory. So this is what's going to take place throughout this entire chapter, that Jesus is superior to the angelic beings. In verse number 10, it says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus, Lord, Yahweh, beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish. You remain. I mean, he is giving credence to the creative abilities of Jesus. Only God creates something out of nothing. Verse number 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? I mean, just look, brothers and sisters, just look at what is happening by this incredible display of taking Jesus Christ, contrasting or comparing, depending on how you want to look at it, but contrasting, if you will, Christ with the highest order of the universe as far as the Jewish theology, Jewish theology is concerned. And he was saying there's, there's really, there's absolutely no comparison whatsoever. But you know, we heard just a few moments ago that there are going to be people who are going to knock on your door and take verse number four and, and say, you know, Jesus was a created being. Really, because of verse number four, it says, having become having become much better than the angels. And so they will use that and they will say to you, see, see, Jesus was not always, and almost like Arius back in the Nicene Council of 325, uh, before there was a time when the sun was not. There was a time when the sun was not. You see, th that Arianism has infested theology down through the ages and and so you have to ask, ask the question, well, what do you mean having become? Well, that's what chapter two was all about. If you take chapter two away from chapter one, you're never really going to understand what it meant for Jesus to become the firstborn in this world. The, the dwelling place of humanity is how the world is termed in this text of chapter one. So look at chapter two, look at verse number nine, just real quickly, because our time is fleeting by. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And why? Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through his sufferings. I mean, this was God's plan for his son for a little while, lower than the angels so he might taste death. Now stop and think about that. There was a time when there's spirit Jesus and spirit Jesus through the incarnation that we talk about, sing about, enjoy at Christmas time, through the incarnation, spirit Jesus becomes flesh Jesus. It's called the incarnation. 
And spirit Jesus becomes flesh Jesus, the incarnation. And now this is taking place because the text tells us so that he might taste death for every man. Well, if God is spirit, he cannot experience death. Death does not mean to cease to exist. Death means to separate the body from the spirit, the material from the immaterial. Well, if he's all immaterial, he can't face death. And that is exactly what the law commands for sin, death. And so when you think about the theology that is here that you don't need to necessarily address, it should be in the back of your mind so that you understand that God's plan was to have spirit Jesus, his son, become flesh Jesus so that there would be a separation of the body from the spirit. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? As it says in Romans, it's not possible that death could hold God. It's not possible. And brothers and sisters, as long as our resurrected Christ is living, we, get, we have a savior. We got ourselves a savior. Now, if he ever ceases living, we got a real problem. So chapter 2 is extremely important. All of this so that you understand the writer of Hebrews is telling us, the congregants, he is telling us that Jesus is superior, superior to the high angelic order. Look at, if you will, chapter 3. He does the second thing. Jesus is also superior to Moses. Now that's really a a bombshell. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, he's speaking to the brothers, Partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. This is so important. Chapter 3 and chapter 12. Consider Jesus. Look to him. Here you have a heightened verb with the idea of put, put all of your attention, put all of your thoughts, put all of your mind, everything about you needs to be focused on Jesus and him alone. Why? He is the sent one, the apostle. We just saw that in chapter 2. God did this. And he's also the high priest of our confession. Look over at chapter 4, very quickly, verse 14. 414, we have a great high priest, and notice where his locus is. He has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So let's hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize, and on it goes. You see, just think of where our high priest is right now. He has passed through the heavens. So back to chapter 3, he says, now listen, I want you to focus your attention on the apostle, on the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, the father, just like Moses was in all of his house. The writer brings up the name Moses. Moses was the greatest Jew that ever lived. I still can remember in 1979, sitting in my first Hebrew class at Bethel Synagogue in Minneapolis, Minnesota under a rabbi. And this particular rabbi made a statement I've never forgotten to this day. We Jews, because there's a number of Gentiles in his class along with Jews, but we Jews believe Moses to be the greatest Jew that ever lived. You feel like want to raise your hand and say, excuse me. But this is what he said. Jews believe that Moses was the greatest to ever live. He talked face to face with God. He led the nation of Israel out of Egypt without firing an arrow. And he miraculously provided for two million Jews in the desert every day. He's the greatest. Well, this is their view. You got the highest angelic order, angels. Jesus is far superior, far superior. What about Moses? Well, 
Moses in verse number two, yeah, Moses was faithful in his house. Look at verse number five. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant, verse six. But Christ is faithful as son over his house. (laughs) So fantastic. That's why verse three, first part of verse three says, and he, Jesus, is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was very faithful in the house. The son is over the house. Just think of this. Boy, how I'd love to develop that. Except to say this, men and women, this is number two. This is fundamental number two idea for the, in Jewish thinking, the greatest man who ever walked that called himself a Jew. Abraham was the progenitor. Abraham was unlike any other, but the man, Moses, was unique. He is the deliverer. But Jesus also is superior to something else. I want to turn to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus is also superior to the whole high priestly system of the old economy. If I were to ask you this question without looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, could you tell me what are the requirements for a high priest? Just think in your mind, what are the requirements for the high priest? Here you have them listed. If you ever want them, they're right here. And there's only two, so it's very easy to do. One finger, one finger, two, okay? Every high priest is taken from among men, appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God, in order to offer both sacrifices and gifts for sins. He will deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for the people as well as for himself. So number one, to be a high priest, not everybody would qualify. There has to be within this person a sensitivity, a tenderness, a gentleness like Eli to Hannah. There has to be this sensitivity so that people are seen as people, not objects. And the way that keeps them with balance in this is that he himself, when he offers sacrifice for sin, almost always must do it for himself as well. He is a sinner as well. This is his depravity. This is his weakness. So the second thing, that's number one, has to do with his attitude temperament, but number Two, look at verse number four, and no one takes this honor to himself, but receives when he is called by God, just like Aaron was. Number one, here's his attitude. Here's his, his, the way he lives his life. He's concerned about people. He doesn't see people as objects. He is the religious leader of the people. I mean, there is no higher religious leader in the old economy than the high priest. None. So you got the highest created order, the greatest Jew that ever lived, and now you're speaking about the highest religious order in Old Testament theology, the high priest. No one took this to himself. Korah tried it in the book of Numbers, and he was swallowed up. I remember Moses said to him, are you now going to seek the priesthood as well? God opened up, and down went Korah. Think of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, where he decides he's going to do the offering and be like the priest, because Samuel hasn't showed up, and Samuel then shows up. And what happens is the kingdom is torn from you, Saul. You are not appointed to this position. And what about the third? 
When you think of not only Saul, King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, where he thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy here. And so he walks in, but he's confronted by 80 priests and they confront him. And all of a sudden leprosy because of his anger just begins to grow right in front of them upon his body. And they ushered him out. Listen, to be appointed by God is a serious thing. So what about Jesus? Look at verse, if you will, chapter five, verse number five. So also Christ. (laughs) He did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. This is the day. Look down at verse number 10. See the conclusion. So he is designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. You say, really? Going back to Genesis in chapter 14, turn to chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Just think of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Look at that. There's no other guy that held these two titles, king, priest, right? And here you have it typologically expressed to us from chapter 14 of Genesis in the New Testament scriptures. And something else about him in verse number two, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of his spoils, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, king of Salem, which is king of peace. I mean, Melchizedek's an amazing guy. But look at verse number three. He's without father, he's without mother, he's without genealogy, he's without beginning, an end of days or end of life, but made like who? What does the text say? Who's he made like? The son of God. Here you have an absolute reversal. It's almost like the, the preacher cannot maintain himself. Nobody like that? You know, somebody can hardly contain themselves. He just can't even get to the end. It's almost like reading Ephesians chapter 2 where he's trying to get to saved by grace, but right in the middle of the, of the paragraph, it puts him saved by grace. So he's trying to help us understand. I mean, Melchizedek is not... It's it's a typological connection. We don't have anything about his genealogy in chapter 14. We don't have anything there at all. It's just all of a sudden he appears and he's gone off the scene. And so he uses that to help us understand that, that the high priest order, the high priestly order of Jesus is after this. It is not after this. We are moving from the tribe of Levi to one that's not part of that. Totally distinct, totally unique. In fact, look at verse 11 of chapter 7. Now, if perfection was through through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the people received the law, this is 711, what further need was there for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according, according to the order of Aaron? 14, skip down to verse 14. For it is evident our Lord descended from Judah. A tribe with reference which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priests. And this is even clearer still if another priest arises in the likeness of, the similitude of Melchizedek, who has become such on the, not on the basis of law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. I mean, he's chosen because he doesn't die. Look at verse 23. Former priests, on the one hand, exited in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. (laughs) But Jesus continues forever, so he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost. Remember, he has to to be tender towards people. 
So he's able to save forever and draw people near to God since he lives and he makes intercession for them. The tenderness of the high priest, very clear of Jesus, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of people, because he did it once for all. He offered it himself. So brothers and sisters, I hope this, I mean, there's still others I wanted to go through, but I can't go through them like I want to. But I hope you get a picture of what the writer of Hebrews is doing. The writer of Hebrews is taking these fundamental theological truths from Jewish theology, and he is not pouring water on them and say they don't count. But what he's doing is this, that if you begin to, you have been converted to Christianity, to Jesus Christ, if you begin to slowly migrate back to where you were and think that you're not abandoning the faith, you were wrong. You were wrong. So, here's what the writer does. That's the body of the letter. There's so much more we could do. But that's the body. But let's look at the introduction. Turn all the way back to chapter 1. This is how he introduces it, which is amazing. In Hebrews in chapter 1, this is how his message is introduced. The subject, God. The verb is verse 2. Has spoken. To us by his son and to fill in the gaps because actually Hebrews begins with two adverbs long ago to the fathers he did it in a frag with a fragment character a little bit here a little bit there and he did it in various ways sometimes dreams remember one time he even spoke through a donkey all the various ways but verse 2 in these last days no longer fragmentary, no longer partial. Now through his son, he's speaking and notice it is to us. And then he describes the son. Number one, whom he, God, appointed heir of everything. Think of that. Everything. That's pretty all encompassing, is it not? Number two. In verse 2, through whom also he made the Ionas, the worlds, your text may say, or ages. The significance of this term is that it's not only the material content that you actually see upon the earth, but it's also the epics of history. And this is highly significant in the book of Hebrews as he's going to show how the old economy is gone and a new economy has come, and all of this because of the sun. It's very important to see this phrase. Through Jesus, this happens. Verse 3. And he is the radiance, only time this word is ever used in the New Testament, he's the radiance of God's glory. I love this, phos ek photos, light out of light, is exactly what takes place here in this text. When you see the radiance, he, he comes as the full glory. Just, just think of us, brothers and sisters, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short, fall short of what? The glory of God. All of us fall short of God's glory. Here is the radiance, the brightness, the beautiful picture. Light out of light is the sun. 
Next, he is the exact representation of his nature. He dealt with the visibility of Christ and his glory. And in fact, John 1, 14, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But now he talks about that which is invisible. The very essence of God is the very essence of Jesus. What Jesus is, God is. What God is, Jesus is. Make no mistake. What else? He upholds everything by the word of his power. There are two thoughts in that. One, look how powerful and mighty his word is. This is such a significant thing, especially when you flip back. We don't have time, but if you flip back to chapter 11 and verse 3, through faith we come to grips with. The worlds were framed by the word of God. Same word in Romans 1.20. Clearly perceived. God's hand is clearly perceived among the pagans and they choose to not do it. And yet chapter 11 verse 3 tells us why. Because it must be mixed with faith. If we are to really express our faith in Jesus as creator, we're going to say he did it with his word. He said, let there be light. And boom, there's light. Let there be. There it is. can think of nothing so great as the creation story that's now highlighted in the book of Hebrews. Extremely important from chapter 1 to the end. You will see Jesus the creator, Jesus the creator, Jesus the creator. And now the word is spoken and it happens. Nothing greater than this, brothers and sisters. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. Back in Hebrews 1. He upholds everything because on the one side is the mighty power. But the other thing is what he is doing. He is holding things together with his word. Jesus is reduced to a pinhead in the womb of Mary. And he is upholding, enabling the world. A number of years ago, I spoke on this text with this, with this people. So if you'll forgive me, those who were here before, I'm going to do it again. I brought with me a 99-cent mechanical pencil sharp writer. Okay, forgive me if I just said that improperly. That's what it is. It's got a little racer on, and I can, you know, not worth it very much, but I'm, I'm going to see how powerful your word is. Okay? So you have several hundred people in this auditorium, and here's what I'm going to do I'm going to take a 99 cent big, pen, uh, big pencil, put it in my hand like this, and I'm going to go one, two, three. When I say three, I want every person in here to say the word stand. And then I'm going to take my hand away and say if how powerful your word is together, okay? Collectively, right? Here we go, ready? One, two, three. I know the problem. We didn't do it loud enough. Now, men and women, he upholds everything by the word of his power. Put hundreds of people in an auditorium with a 99-cent pencil to try to stand it on my hand. And all of us collectively cannot say the word stand and it do that. What else does it say? He made purification for sins. The law made nothing perfect, chapter 7. He made purification for sins. And he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty. You know what happens in these verses here? In these verses, Jesus is proclaimed the prophet through whom God has spoken. He is proclaimed as high priest who fully accomplished our redemption. He is proclaimed as king who is sitting at the right hand of honor, the place of majesty. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. You better get it. That's how he begins. How does he end? Chapter 13. Chapter 13. Look at verse number 20 and 21. I love how you have this incredible prayer as benediction, if you will. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. May he equip you in every good thing so that you do his will. And this is so amazing. At the very end, it says through Jesus Christ. Okay, but look this. Working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that Brothers and sisters, if we capture this book, if we capture the theme of this book and understand it's not just a theme so you walk out and say, oh, Jesus is great. It's a theme that rests on these two pillars. Press hard, press hard, press hard towards maturity. Faith is indispensable in your Christian life. Without faith, you can't please God. Trust him. Faith is a surrendering of yourself of your heart, of your will, of your purpose to the one who can just say the word and it happens. Who do you want to trust? A message came to the captain of the ship and this was the message on the cap- to the captain. Alter your course 10 degrees south. To which the captain replied, I will not do that. You alter your course 10 degrees north. Answer, sir, I ask you again, and you don't have much time. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Captain, this is the captain speaking. I command the battleship. Immediately alter your course 10 degrees north. Answer, sir, this is a lighthouse. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, listen very carefully. What you are fixed on determines how you walk. Where your attention is determines the decisions you make. Where your focus is That's where your body goes. So I wonder, is Jesus supreme in my life? In your life? Does he have complete authority? Lord Jesus, we bow before you today. And we're very aware that the writer of Hebrews 
wants the church to alter their course in connection with Jesus Christ. We have people here who are intellectual Christians. They're not going to make it into heaven. Knowledge does not get us into heaven. There are people here who have embraced Christ, but they are fixed on everything but him, and their lives are proof of it. God, the book of Hebrews is written so that we might have a proper confession. And a confession is more than just what we say intellectually. It's how we live our life. It's our perseverance in our life. It's our maturity pushing forward. It's the indispensability of our surrender to Jesus Christ so that you will not find these kinds of people talking about other people in a negative way. You will not find these kinds of people who are twiddling their thumbs wondering if God cares You will not find these kinds of people who are going through very dark times who are abandoning the faith. Jesus, you're everything to us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Would you make Hebrews come alive to these people? In Jesus' name, amen.